This is John Shannon for Radio Free Galisteo. I am speaking with Melanie K. Yazzie, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Native American Studies and American Studies at the University of New Mexico. She is one of six contributors to the volume Red Nation Rising from Border Town Violence to Native Liberation. Melanie, can you tell me a little bit about what you looked at in, in your portion of this volume of work? Sure. Well, it was a it was a true collaborative effort. So we all worked on each part of the book. So the book is sort of broken up into three parts. There's an introduction, which is kind of a more normal narrative form um, that you would expect to see in a nonfiction book. And then the middle sections are we started we're thinking about them as keywords, right? So keywords that pertain to border town violence, we divvy those up equally. Um, and then we have a manifesto, a border town violence, and then a, a border town justice manifesto at the end. And so we workshopped all of those things together and I think really worked really well together to divvy up the labor. I would say kind of conceptually and politically, what I contributed to the book comes out of the work that I've done with an organization that I co-founded and helped organize, which is called the Red Nation. It's a grassroots indigenous liberation organization that organizes for indigenous liberation from uh, colonialism and capitalism. But then also outside of the Red Nation, uh, the collaborative work that I was able to do also with the authors who wrote the foreword, Red Millicody and Brandon Benali, as far back as 2013 and 2014, when the six of us who kind of contributed to the book we're starting to do more on-the-ground work with unsheltered populations, particularly Native people in border towns like Albuquerque and Gallup. Uh, we were seeing, right, there's a national conversation because of Black Lives Matter uprisings around that time around police violence against uh, African Americans. But there wasn't really much of a conversation, right, about the, the really high rates of police violence against Native people. And if folks don't know, you know, Native people are actually killed by police at higher rates than any other demographic in the United States. And so we were really interested in kind of trying to speak to that reality, the lived reality of Native working class and poor people. Something we also discovered at this time was that about three-fifths of Native people don't live on the reservation. So they don't live kind of out in... I think what um, often people, when people think about where Native people are, like physically in space, they often think about them on the reservation. But, you know, being here in Albuquerque, I also grew up in reservation border towns close to the Navajo Nation, knowing that there are huge Native populations in these cities. And so how were, how how is it, right, that the way that people were framing Native issues and Native politics at that time we're perhaps not actually capturing the, the reality of what Native people were experiencing in those spaces, right? Because I think something we talk a lot about in the book, and I thought have thought a lot about, is that Native people aren't supposed to be off-reservation, right? Yet you find so many of us off-reservation. And then there's all of these other types of violence that kind of extend from that off-the-reservation status. And so we really wanted to speak to that and to capture that reality especially working with folks living on the streets, you know, talking to the families of Native people who have been slain and killed by the police and being able to try to understand that kind of within the larger structure of settler colonialism specifically, um, but also the way that capitalism operates in these spaces. And really what we wanted to do was we wanted to explain why the levels of social and political violence against Native people are so high, right? 
why you see Native people getting killed by vigilantes at really high rates, why you see Native people in these spaces being killed by police, why the the rates of, um, of unsheltered folks, people kind of escaping domestic abuse and other types of um, gender violence, why those rates are so high in these spaces. And so this is kind of some of what we were trying to capture in the book. In your study, what what have you found with regard to, you just mentioned the statistics regarding deaths at the hands of the police. Mm-hmm. How did you go about looking at that and what else have you determined through your study? Well, it's, you know, it's interesting. I've uh, continued to do a lot of work on police violence outside of and kind of in, in the aftermath of this book being published and there's very little data, actually, um, racial breakdowns, specifically race and ethnicity breakdowns from police departments in the Mountain West. New Mexico would count as a state that sits in the Mountain West. Um, there's a great series that came out from the Mountain West Bureau called Elevated Risk, where they talk about the difficulties in actually finding correct data on police killings of Native people. So, and actually, this is consistent with the fact that data is missing pretty much across the board when it comes to Native people in terms of health care, even MMIW, sorry, missing and murdered um, Indigenous women, girls and people, right? So data, collecting data is actually a real challenge when it comes to talking about the rates, right, and trying to get um, accurate statistics. So something we did was we talked a lot to people. We did a lot of qualitative work, um, you know, hitting the streets, doing interviews, talking to folks on the streets about the levels of police harassment that they face, right? Because police violence isn't just when police kill somebody, right? There's a whole spectrum of police violence that I think maybe we don't always pay attention to either. And that police violence, for example, Jolene Nez, she's a Navajo woman who passed away in custody at the very end of January 2021. And the reason why she was picked up by the cops was for a charge almost a year ago at the beginning of the pandemic where an APD officer, sorry, an Albuquerque Police Department officer pulled over while she was walking down the street and cited her for littering because she she refused to pick up a cup and throw it away in the trash, right? And then she was issued, um, she didn't show up for her court date for that petty citation, and then she was there, a bench warrant was issued for her arrest, and then you know she encountered a police officer, you know, sometime almost a year later, and then she died in custody because of that bench warrant for not picking up a cup on the street, right? And so that would be a death in custody as well, but the origin story of that was actually an everyday form of police harassment that we heard a lot of stories again and again and again, especially from Native people living on the streets, of the type of violence that they experience on a daily basis from police. And so because there are such significant gaps in the data, we tried to fill that with the qualitative analysis, right, with kind of going out and talking to people. Something else we also did, the Red Nation issued a report on Gallup. I believe this was in 2015 or 2016. It's just called the Gallup Report. You can find it on the rednation.org website, our, our organization's website. But... Um, we talked to people, and then we went back into newspapers. We, we looked at obituaries, and we looked at news stories, and we tried to cross, cross-reference, right, kind of the interviews and the qualitative kind of the one-on-one conversations with people with what had appeared in the newspapers to try to find an accurate tally of what we call unnatural deaths. So police killings are a type of unnatural death, but so too are exposure deaths, right? Mm-hmm. When people die from the elements, um, when people get hit by trains, 
uh, when people get killed by vigilantes and those kinds of things. And so there's this huge spectrum of unnatural deaths that you see Native people being subjected to in border towns. And so these are just some of the ways in which we tried to accurately capture the data, but I'm not going to lie. It's very difficult to, to have that type of accuracy. I can imagine. Let me ask you this. I, when, in speaking to, to David Correa earlier, he mentioned that this requires more, a solution to all of this requires more than just a, a couple of politicians coming together and saying, here's here's some of the action we're going to take. He's you know, His comment was that we have to take it all the way down and, and rework it. Essentially, how do we how do we get rid of or how do we remove the settler state? I don't want to speak for him. And, and with that in mind, the Albuquerque Police Department has been, well, <laughs> provided oversight by the Department of Justice, the U.S. Department sure. of Justice. How do you see that as either helping uh, or just uh, is, is it just more window dressing to this uh, to these circumstances? Yeah, I I was um, Albuquerque Journal is behind a paywall. <laughs> so I don't always get to read. Um, the articles, because Albuquerque Journal is actually a really good source for kind of what's going on mm. with the DOJ oversight of the APD. But um, wasn't wasn't it the chief of police or Mayor Keller, Mayor Tim Keller, who's the mayor of Albuquerque, said something that the APD is requesting that the DOJ kind of release some of the demands yeah. because they fulfilled yeah. those demands at this point. This was quite recent, wasn't it? Maybe a few yeah, weeks ago. Yeah, within, within a week, uh, I think, yeah. Okay, within a week. Okay. And so the DOJ has what? came in around 2014, 2015, mm-hmm. um, right, to, to, and dropped that in, that report on the APD. And so, I mean, that that's interesting to me that the APD would be asking to be released from the accountability that DOJ threw down on them when sort of community stories, right, and the understanding from the community still. And by, by the community, I mean poor and working class people of color in Albuquerque, of which there are many, right, still see the Albuquerque Police Department as an incredibly violent force in their everyday lives. Again, not necessarily because APD is still killing people at the highest rates per capita of any city in the country. I think we were surpassed a few years ago. New Mexico, police in New Mexico still kill people at higher rates than any state in the country. So let's not forget that that's happening some of which happens in Albuquerque. We still are in that dubious number one spot. The police violence itself has not actually ended. And I was thinking, um, I don't know if it was like last weekend or two weeks ago, when, uh, was it the All Lives or the White Lives Matter? There was a call, oh, a right. national call mm-hmm. to action yeah. for this White Lives Matter um, rally. And then there was a small one in Albuquerque, and a lot of people came out to protest it. But the, the counter-protesters against the White Lives Matter protesters, you know, were calling the riot cops who were actually protecting the heavily armed White Lives Matter protesters Nazi cops, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And some of them were so demoralized that a bunch of them resigned from, I think, the emergency response team in the APD. Oh, yes, yes. And it's like, when you're being called a Nazi cop by the community, then you really know what that community thinks of you, and it doesn't matter what a DOJ investigation tells you. It doesn't matter that Tim Keller created, what is it called, the community safety kind of branch of the APD. So right, it's like, yeah. Was it like asking like cops maybe not to handle mental health checks? I mean, APD went to go do a wellness check down the street from where I live 
uh, a year ago in March of 2021, and they they, they shot and killed um, Valente Acosta Bustillos. Okay, so APD is still trigger happy and as violent as ever. And if anything from like last weekend at that White Lives Matter counter protest tells you, you know, people still think the cops are still in cahoots with the militias that were terrorizing, you know, people of color and other folks out on the streets this past summer in solidarity with Black Lives Matter. You're listening to Melanie K. Yazzie, assistant professor in the departments of Native American Studies and American Studies at the University of New Mexico. She's discussing her contribution to the book Red Nation Rising, From Border Town Violence to Native Liberation. Available now at pmpress.org. So what I'm trying to say is police reform is, to me, it really seems like window dressing. And I'll say one last thing. Was it in Oregon? I, I forgot the headline. I apologize. That's okay. But a similar city, maybe it was Portland, the mayor had established something very similar to the community safety department, the way that the Albuquerque's mayor had. And the police, this was just a couple of few weeks ago, the police went in and killed somebody who was having a mental health episode. Police are always claiming that they're in danger, and that's why they need to use lethal force. And people are like, well, you created this community safety department to handle mental health issues. Why are police still being deployed on those calls? Because the, the incidence, right, of police shootings, fatal police shootings, increases drastically when someone is having a mental health episode. And so I think in that context, it shows us really clearly that these types of reforms don't work because policing at its base upholds a racist structure. This is like all people in the U.S. have been talking about. (laughs) George Floyd was murdered. We're talking about it again after the Chauvin trial, right? And the verdict came down just two yesterday. Just yesterday. It was yesterday morning, wasn't it? Uh, Or Tuesday afternoon. Yeah, the day before yesterday. Yeah, it was was quick. The day before yesterday. (laughs) That policing is inherently racist because the structure of white supremacy that upholds the United States is inherently racist. So what are we going to do about racism? Yes, police are a huge problem, but they are the foot soldiers of this larger structure. So what are we going to do to tackle that structure? And I think that's partly what David is probably pointing at, and that's like an argument that we make in the book. Related to this, uh, recently Congress started paying attention to uh, missing and murdered Native American women, and they've they've passed some legislation. Sure. What are your thoughts on that? Is this a help, or is is this uh, again we're we're looking at uh, it's it's just not nearly enough? So Deb Holland, right, um, who's from New Mexico, she her her district was here uh, when she was still in Congress before she took over the DOI, um, the Department of Interior position, uh, was here in Albuquerque where we live. Um, If folks don't know, Albuquerque has one of the highest rates of missing and murdered indigenous women and girls in the country. New Mexico, I believe, ranks number one in the state, in terms of the states that have um, the highest numbers of MMIWG. And so she just announced last week or the week before the missing and murdered unit. And so what she's proposing and what a lot of people, a lot of advocates, for trying to reduce those numbers, trying to get, first of all, accurate data. I can't say you go. It's really mm-hmm. difficult to get accurate data. But then trying to reduce the numbers and to prevent, you know, MMIWGs from continuing to happen, look to law enforcement. 
to help with that. So the FBI is involved in that. I'm assuming state and kind of municipal police forces are involved in that. You might even have border police um, in some ways involved in that. And something that we have long argued and that we also argue in Red Nation Rising is that how can you ask a group of perpetrators, otherwise known as police, whose job it is to uphold white supremacy and in the context of border towns, settler colonialism, i.e. elimination and disappearance of native people, right? How can you ask that body of that institution to rectify a type of violence that they, they themselves participate in on behalf of the larger structure of settler colonialism? I mean, 40% of cops self-identify as domestic abusers, right? So the kind of violence that Native women and girls and two-spirit relatives experience, it's, it's the exact same kind of violence that these cops perpetrate in their own homes against their own partners and families, but then it's the same type of violence that they perpetrate when they're out on the streets harassing, you know, my sis, our sister Jolene Nez for not picking up a cup on the street. And so there's just a consistent pattern of extreme violence, I would say misogyny, and definitely anti-Indian racism that the police definitely hold in these spaces. People we talked to told us how cops say racist things to them all the time also in those kind of day-to-day interactions on the streets. And so for us, turning to law enforcement, right, to kind of to help alleviate this problem or the solution to this problem doesn't make a lot of sense. And so, you know, there are really incredible um, programs like the American Indian Movement, for example, which started in the Twin Cities, you know, began as a community patrol because police violence was so outrageous and out of control against the native neighborhoods in that city or in those cities. And so being able to reinforce those kinds of community patrols that are native run to protect people so that we don't have to turn to the police. Because we all know that when you call the cops, especially if you're native or you're black or you're having a mental health episode, or even if it's a domestic violence incident, the likelihood that someone will get shot in that encounter, it skyrockets, right? People have a real fear of being killed by the police, shot and killed by the police or tased like Daryl House was you know, out of Petroglyph National Monument in December. Right. Yeah, just recently. So community, right. So community patrols are one thing. But the thing is, is like, you can also promote and advocate for tribal sovereignty and that treaty rights and the rights of being an indigenous citizen. I'm a citizen of the Navajo Nation, for example. That My rights as a citizen of the Navajo Nation don't end when I leave the boundaries of the reservation. Right. They follow me wherever I move. Even if I, you know, I live here in Albuquerque, which isn't really considered, isn't technically considered Navajo land. And that our indigenous nations can also help to protect people out in these spaces as an act of tribal sovereignty, as an act of protecting its citizens, as an act of caretaking its citizens. And so, right, we're just asking people to think, to imagine the possibilities for how we stop this violence from happening and how we employ what is already existing that can strengthen indigenous nationhood and indigenous sovereignty while also 
essentially weakening, you know, the carceral institutions like police and like prisons and even like vigilantes, right, who operate almost unchecked in these spaces and enact remarkable violence against their people. Uh, Melanie, as we wind up, your final thoughts, please. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Um, I think something that I didn't talk much about, I talked a lot about so the title of the book, right, is called mm. Red Nation Rising, From Border Town Violence to Native Liberation. I talked a lot about the border town violence piece. I didn't talk much about the native liberation piece. And this is something that's really beautiful and exciting about the book is that, you know, we really interrogate and deconstruct the violence that happens and why that violence happens at such high rates against native people. But we also talk a lot about the vibrant, powerful histories of resistance that have emerged from reservation border towns, you know, that have defined eras of important militant movements like Red Power. The Red Nation was born out of the work we do in reservation border towns. And so, you know, the violence has always been met with resistance from indigenous people. And I'm thinking specifically when, um, Two Navajo land, three Navajo men were brutally murdered in 1974 in Farmington by white high school students. It's a type of Indian rolling. It's a a type of vigilante violence. It's very common. And border towns specifically targets Native people, usually Native folks living on the streets. Um, There was a riot. You know, there was an uprising of activists from the 1970s, 80s, and 90s called it the long, hot summer of 1974. You know, they marched every single week to try to stop the violence and to protect their relatives. And so Red Nation Rising really speaks to that history and tries to continue that history and remind people that, yes, the violence is really extreme, but the resistance is just as powerful as that which we are up against. And so I think the book details that resistance to manifesto, right, that we offer as that third large kind of section of the book. The manifesto is our version of of how we liberate ourselves from the violence um, that 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 happens to us in these spaces but why reservation border towns are so pivotal in this longer history but also the future of indigenous liberation struggles that manifesto can be found in red nation rising from border town violence to native liberation you've been listening to melanie k yazi an assistant professor in the departments of native american studies and american studies at the university of new mexico red nation rising's release date is 28 april and you can find it at its publisher's website pm press You can also learn more by going to the Red Nation Facebook page at facebook.com backslash the Red Nation. For Radio Free Galisteo, I'm John Shannon.